We have a really important topic that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, this is uh, a topic that I believe is incredibly relevant today, especially for the city that we live in. Uh, the city that we live in, what's incredible about New York City is it is one of the most dense populations on earth, yet also one of the most lonely places on earth. Uh, and because of that, and because of the rise of social media and Netflix, what has happened in society is there has been a rise of things like depression and anxiety that we, as the people of God, feel the effects of as well. And you may be here and may not call yourself a Christian, but you have felt the effects of depression and anxiety. And we are here to stand with you today, but also to say is, that we are with you in a lot of those feelings. And uh, so some, uh, we have a, a guest speaker with us today, and I'm really excited um, about him being here. He is somebody in my own life that has been able to encourage and to speak wisdom uh, into my life. I uh, have been able to sit through family therapy with him, go through personal counseling with him, and uh, I can tell you that there have been some major moves that have happened in my family and in my personal life that wouldn't have gone as well and wouldn't have maybe even happened if it wasn't for this uh, man's insight. And so I uh, wanted him to come and speak to us today because uh, as a pastor of this congregation, I feel the need for us to talk about this topic and talk about it in a very relevant and practical way. Uh, but what's special about him is he is not only a strong Christian, but he also has his PhD in psychology. Uh, he's run a practice for many, many years. They've seen over 100,000 patients, uh, which means they have uh, seen over half a million people affected by the practice that he runs in Virginia. And so this is a man that has very practical insight into what God has to say about this subject. Uh, and so, uh, without me taking up any further time, can we welcome Dr. Paul Van Valen to be with us today? Very good. So, actually, we can just move this. I'll probably wander around and bump my knee on it if it's sitting there like that. So... Um, Welcome, and, and thank you for coming out today. Uh, it's a beautiful day. It'd be a nice day to walk in the park, but you've all chosen to come here, which is a, which is a great thing. Okay, so I'm just going to tell you when to transition slides. Is that okay? So let's have another one. Um, not that. Uh, let's hold off on that. There we go. So, <laughs> so let's, the next slide, please. So this is just a little bit about me. Uh, before I was uh, anything, in 1955, I was born to a pastor. I share a similar heritage to your pastor, who's a preacher's kid. Uh, my wife is a preacher's kid. She's a wave, Becky, so you can see this beautiful woman over there. We've been married for 40 years, right? So we married in 1977, which is when we both began studying uh, the fields that we've been practicing. So for 40 years, we've been studying and practicing in the areas of, of uh, psychology and counseling. We have three grown sons. Uh, one of them just moved to Williamsburg here uh, in January, and so we're looking for lots of excuses to come up here and uh, do ministry and, and stay at his place, which is great. Saved me 600 bucks in hotel bills to stay with him. It's awesome. 
And so, as Justin said, we have been running Eden Counseling and Consulting for 22 years. And uh, part of what I'm going to share with you today is we're going to look at King David. Uh, the title of the sermon comes from his work. Psalms, which is a chapter of 150 psalms written by King David, are songs. And so we're going to look at, if you want to just start looking now in your, in your phone, Psalm 22. Uh, if you follow your pastor's lead and carry a little app there. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to read that together. It's, it's kind of lengthy, so you want to follow along if you can't see the monitors. It'll be on the monitors as well. And then I'm going to share what God has done in my life. I have struggled at times with depression and anxiety. It's something that we're all familiar with, either personally or we know someone. It's very, very common. Depression and anxiety are the most common things that I, as a professional, treat. And it's just endemic to the human adventure that sometimes in the human adventure you kill the bear and sometimes the bear kills you. And in the course of uh, various losses, we experience very strong emotions at times. So we're going to be talking about that. Next slide, please. So if we look at depression and, and, and anxiety, they've been around forever since the beginning of time. A king Saul was the very first king of the, of the kingdom of Israel, and he struggled with something. It may well have been bipolar disorder or the current term for what is the manic depression illness. He would go into great rages. There are stories where he took a spear and just threw it at David, even though he loved him. And uh, David, who was a musician, an incredible man, musician, great leader, became a great warrior, he would soothe the king by playing his harp and singing his psalms, probably many of which were original. And so he had this uh, wonderful relationship that, as you read through the stories, becomes detrimental, and that Saul became jealous of David eventually. Uh, the people were crying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And if you're a king, and you've got a leader that maybe could turn your army against you, you get a little anxious and Saul got kind of paranoid and tried to kill David. And we're going to read a psalm from this period of time when he was being pursued and in fear of his life. So um, the psalms can be divided up into three parts, three sections. There are 150 of them. And some of them are just thanksgiving, just gratitude to God. Some are hymns. They seem to have, you know, very poetic. And some are psalms of lament or woe or hard times or complaint. Um, and so we're going to look at those. And there are 67 of those. And just a few lines from some of them, phrases like, my bed is wet from my tears. That sounds depressive, doesn't it? You know, weeping. My bones ache. Physical pain is magnified by depression. Bones aching. And, uh, and some of them are just different. So I spent some time reading through some of these in preparation for this message. And 88 was interesting because it didn't follow the typical pattern. It was all complaint. Now, and, but then when you read 89, he comes right back to praise. And so what we're going to see in Psalm 22 here in just a minute is how David expresses what he feels, what he's afraid of, what he's concerned about, always turning his mind to God, what God has done and what God will do. And so that's how you write a psalm. So let's turn the next slide, please. And uh, so these little, the black bold there are parenthetical notes in the Bible, which tells us the tune that we are to sing this to. And so we should sing this to the doe of the morning. So Justin, will you hum a little bit of that so we can just kind of get rolling with the doe? Yeah, okay, so we can't do that. Um, so I was trying to think of a song we could sing this to, and, and the closest thing I could come was Hey Jude, if you change this a little bit, right? So we'd go, my God, where have you gone? Why are you so far from saving me? And so on and so forth. But it doesn't really fit just right. And the reason that it doesn't is that it was written in Hebrew. So if we had the Hebrew, it would fit into Hey Jude just perfect, especially the na-na-na part. That just goes great with this particular psalm. So it starts out with a complaint. 
complaint. This is a psalm of woe. And so he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that phrase is used later by Christ. And you're going to see in this particular psalm some very interesting prophetic stuff as we go through this. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Next slide, please. And I've put little headings at each of these things. Now he, we see complaint, now he goes to praise. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the one Israel praises, in you our ancestors put their trust, they trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and you were saved, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now this is an important point here. He starts with the present, how miserable he feels, and he goes to the past, but he doesn't allow his feelings to rewrite the past. He doesn't discount what God has done because he is suffering. He acknowledges what God did. And you'll see this over and over in these Psalms. He is, in his pain, he still remembers how powerful God is, how good God is, and how God is a God of deliverer and a God of strength. And people, when they're depressed, tend, the depression tends to shape our reality past, present, and future. And so we'll see how he avoids that trap. We have an enemy of the soul. Uh, he's called Satan in some circles, the devil in other circles, however you, however you think of him, Lucifer. And his only tool is deception. So we see this in the garden where he deceived Adam and Eve into eating of fruit by telling them partial truths. If you know this story, they're in the, they're in the garden and, and Satan appears to them in the form of a serpent and he says to them, you know, this food, this food is beautiful. It will make you be like God and you will know good and evil. And they... And he says, uh, but God said we would die if we would eat this, they said to him. Satan says, no, you will not die, but he leaves out the yet part. That's what Satan does. He leaves out this important piece. So, so, so that, I give you that just to illustrate that deception is Satan's tool, and we can be deceived in our thinking when our feelings are bad. That's a, that's a risk we run, and we need help not to go there. So this is, we'll talk at the end, how to minister to people, how to help them stay in the right frame of mind, even if they're struggling with anxiety and depression. Next slide, please. So he goes on, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Next slide. Here's the, back to the positive. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Next slide, please. So this is very interesting. So we just had Easter, right? Do you guys do that here? Is that so? Okay, so you guys do Easter. That's great. You know, you never know. The north and the south, they may be different. We're from Virginia. So, um, so, so think of Good Friday as we read this next section. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Right? Do you see Good Friday in that? Hands and feet. Christ was probably shamefully crucified naked. His bones were on display, and they cast lots for his garment. So, you know, we'll never know why that just comes out of David all of a sudden, but I'm guessing that he had the experience of being very close to God in that moment as a source of comfort, even though he's describing these terrible things. I, you know, it's hard to imagine what he might have been experiencing, but this is clearly prophetic of the Christ. Next slide, please. 
So he asks, this is his ask, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Next slide. Next slide, please. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Next slide. <clears throat> so he just shares his feelings here. Now just think depression when you, when you read this one. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. I was depressed on one occasion for a couple of years, and my wife had to remind me, she, she wasn't meaning this critically, she would say, remember to stand up as you go and speak, Paul. Stand up straight, because your, your bones, I mean, you, this, you know, my bones are, my heart are melted, you just don't have much in you, and sometimes you have to fake it. That's part of the message of, of today's thing as well. So next slide, please. <clears throat> goes back to praise. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So here he is referencing his kingdom, the Jews. These are the, these are the people he's talking about. He ends with a much bigger prophecy that encompasses all of us. Next slide, please. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember. See, this is, now it's getting big. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Next slide. Here's another prophecy. And you, so think Christ as you, as you read through this. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And that is Christ. Next slide. Well, that's the end of that one. So he ends up with, so I just want you to see the pattern. And when I tell people to write their psalm, which is something I do in counseling, Feel free to express to God everything you don't like. It's perfectly legitimate. David shows this example. He knows your heart. He can take it. You can even express how disgusted you are with him. David did that sometimes. Where are you, guy? Come on. You know, you're supposed to be helping me here. It's okay to express that. But notice how he then anchors himself in the historic past of God's goodness, and he projects into the future God's triumph all the way through to Christ's coming and the entire course of nature worshiping him. And that sustains us when we are dealing with anxiety and depression. My message isn't how to never have anxiety and depression or how to get out of it tomorrow if you're in it. The main point of this message is how does God use anxiety and depression? Interesting thought, right? How does God use anxiety and depression? So we're going to tap on this. All right, so I just wanted to go to the New Testament to give you a taste of God's economy. God values things differently than humans tend to value them. And so we hear blessed or happy 
If you read the Romanian Bible, blessed is not a word, it has to be happy. So it translates, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means there's nothing in you that can sustain you spiritually. And you have to be poor in spirit to be filled with God. That's, that's, it's, it's announcing that I have nothing, I need God. And we will be blessed because we are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Nobody really enjoys mourning, but happy will be those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So there's a promise. Blessed are the persecuted and the slandered, for your reward in heaven is great. So when you're reading the Beatitudes, some of it just sort of flows and makes sense. But when you read blessed are the persecuted, that's like, uh, what is that? So that's an example of the different kind of economy that God has, that God values people even when they are struggling. This is a really important thing to remember and thing I had to be reminded of as I was doing my struggle myself. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are beautiful and valuable. You are beautiful and valuable. You're sitting alone. You are beautiful and valuable. So this is a truth. This is a truth no matter how you look. This is a truth. I used to be more beautiful than I am now. Thanks. Things, you know, things change, right? Um, uh, and, and the value is who we are as Christ's child. So, so this, is a little, this is a little soapbox thing. It has nothing to do with my topic, but it came to my mind that I'm going to share it. So you've heard about unconditional love, right? I don't buy it. I, don't, I just don't buy it. I think it's, it's, it comes from a humanist tradition, and here's why I don't buy it. What I believe in is positional love which is very different than unconditional love. Because if you read the Old Testament, you see there are times when God really laid into his people. I mean, there's some scary stuff back there. So I don't believe that, that we are always necessarily experiencing the favor of God necessarily, but by our position as joint heirs with Christ, just like my sons, right? I love my sons because of their position. Does that make sense? So, so we have the opportunity of entering into, into God with a positional love that never changes, that never ends. Just as I would love my sons, no matter what they do, right, positionally. Now, it's interestingly different with spouses, right? I mean, we are committed. This is, just hang with me. So my wife and I have been married for 40 years, and we've signed up for the next 40. You know, uh, you know we're 62 years of age. I call that midlife. Because if you read Genesis 5, he says... No more shall man live as long as Noah. His days will be 120 years. And that's what I've signed up for. So, so we, have, we, have a good, we have a good number of years ahead of us here moving forward. But I could imagine if I misbehaved enough, she would divorce me. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, you know, if, if we really step out of covenant. And so even a marriage is a covenant and different than being a son. Does that make sense? So, so my son will always be my son no matter what. If my wife got unhappy enough with me, which I don't intend to see happen, I'm just using this as illustratively, that could sever our relationship. So I'm, I'm just making a distinction. It isn't conditional or unconditional. It is positional. And only through Christ can you be assured of your position with God. Okay, next slide, please. So these are some Christian leaders who struggled with depression. I want to let you know that you can accomplish great things in spite of anxiety and depression. And so John Bunyan, who none of you have ever heard of, because he lived in the 17th century, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which was a historic great Christian classic, which if you read it, you would laugh because his, his illustrations are just so blatantly evident. So he has Pilgrim, the main character is Pilgrim, right? So Pilgrim is traveling and has all kinds of troubles, as did John Bunyan. And there's a place where Pilgrim ended up called the Slough of Despair, which is a word nobody uses, which means swamp. 
So this was the kind of story he wrote, how Pilgrim went along and all of a sudden he's in the swamp of despair and how he gets out of it. And my point is, John himself struggled with depression and yet wrote what is considered one of the greatest Christian classics of his century. Now, John Wesley, a little more modern, uh, Methodist, you ever hear these guys? Okay, so, so Wesley was an itinerant pastor. He rode on horseback from town to town in England, and he got people who lived in poverty and alcoholism to become converted and then taught them a method of discipleship, and hence the church Methodism, which is my background. I believe very much that there are disciplines that must be practiced to develop ourselves as disciples of Christ, and John Wesley valued that, who struggled with depression, and yet he evangelized a nation. And then we have Billy Graham. You ever hear of Billy Graham? Any, any, so, so Billy passed away recently, and he was, I read in an article years ago, he said, every time I get up to preach, I am so anxious, I feel like I could vomit. And so we are not free from tension necessarily, even we are, when we are God's anointed and God's chosen. And so any, you know, we believe, I believe that it's useful for leaders to be reasonably transparent, as your pastor was amazingly transparent a few minutes ago, right? He acknowledged knowing me publicly. That's an amazing thing. That's really, I thank you for that. <laughs> Next slide. <laughs> okay, you ever hear Abraham Lincoln? Struggle with depression. Winston Churchill? If you read Churchill's writings, he, he writes about the black dog that follows me every now and then and comes to visit. He probably had what's called cyclothymic depression, which is kind of a cousin of manic depression, just would come and be on him and he'd struggle, but nonetheless, he helped England survive just as Abraham Lincoln influenced America for centuries. Next slide. So what is mental health? Uh, Sigmund Freud, who was an atheist, um, nonetheless, sometimes spoke the truth. And so one of his, uh, one of his phrases was, uh, mental health is the ability to work and to love. Simple definition. If people can work and love, they're probably reasonably mentally healthy. In this text from the Bible, uh, we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read into it actually, some similar uh, sentiment. So uh, Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And then he said the second one is similar to the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And so this, you can read this in Luke. It's, this is in three Gospels. You can read this in different places. So all these things, heart, soul, mind, and capacity for love are affected negatively by anxiety and depression. So when you are anxious, the heart, your passion, your sense of spiritual connectedness is weak and negative, and you are prone to feeling negative feelings. Uh, in your soul, which is can also be synonymous with mind, your thought, your faith, what you think, what you believe, affect it as well. We get negative in our thinking. And strength, love the Lord with all your strength, would refer to the world of work. Most of you have to work to eat, right? You know, anybody rich enough to never have to work in this room? Just keep that to yourself because everybody be asking you for money. So just, just don't, <laughs> don't respond to that. So, but, but love the Lord with your strength has to do with your body, your goods, your stuff. Part of loving the Lord with your strength is giving money charitably to the church and to charitable organizations. And then the last neighbor love is, is loving others. And people who are anxious and depressed tend to isolate, which is the worst thing for them. And they need help not to. But we tend to isolate. We lack joy in human contact. I was, when I was at one of my worst moments, uh, we went out to dinner with a couple and I couldn't think of a thing to say through an entire discourse of, an, of a meal. My wife, who is very social, uh, carried me through all those times when, when, when we were in rough rough spot. She's more naturally wired for that anyway. But there, there, are, there are just times when we're just not there. We're, there's just nothing there for us to give. So, so the ability to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength 
and your neighbor as yourself would reflect reasonable health, and we all need help in certain sectors when we are not. Next slide, please. So, I was raised by good people, generations of pastors, missionaries, bishops within the organization of the church that we were part of, um, and yet there was a perfectionism and a sobriety, kind of a somberness, a lack of joy kind of in our environment. So, so perfection was expected, and you heard about the imperfection when it occurred, which created a bit of a critical environment. I was a very sensitive kid. I was extremely introverted, extremely shy. I had difficulty responding to adults when I was a little tyke. My parents were concerned that I'd never amount to anything, and they're kind of glad at least I got a college degree, married somebody, and I'm able to make a living now as this goes on. So, so, but that's who I was naturally and in terms of my social climate. In spite of that, I was drawn to leadership positions as a youngster. Leadership in my church, leadership in my community. I was a musician leading various things. And, uh, and I discovered in graduate school by talking to someone who was studying this that I had a tendency towards seasonal affective disorder, which is real. And so what that means is between, in, in your part of the world, between October and March, when the day gets shorter than the night, right? There's a place where you, and we've, we've kind of crossed that now. If you look at the, when the sun rises and sunsets, we're beyond that now. But during that window of time, there's less sunlight and people are prone to depression. And so on a, if, if we have three gloomy days, I just want to take a nap. You know, I want, to, I want to curl up and isolate. The sun comes out, boom, I'm ready to go. 40% of the population are affected like this, right? So you could just cut, look at this room and, you know, like 40% of you. My wife is not affected by this at all, right? She can feel bad on any, any day or good on any day. It has nothing to do with, with the weather, right? So, uh, so what do we do? Those of you that have this, you want to expose yourself to light. And so you get yourself, a, you can go down to... Wherever you here in the city, you go to the hardware store, I don't know where that is, but you get a, you get a full spectrum light bulb in, a, in a, like a gooseneck lamp. And you, when you're eating your Cheerios in the morning, you just shine that on your face for 15 minutes, shine it in your eyes, and you trick your brain into thinking the sun's up. And it makes a difference. And so I've had friends and family and clients who practice this in the morning before the sun comes up and in the afternoon about 3 o'clock, 3.30, and they've improved their mood. So that's a little tip from the chair, therapist chair. Um, is there anything else on here? Okay, next slide, please. <clears throat> okay, so I started eating in 1995, and we grew like crazy. We doubled every six months, new offices. We didn't know anything about running a business. And so when we you know, weren't able to pay, start paying ourselves, I woke up one morning feeling like there was electric current running through my body. It was, it was my part of my stress response, which is, I've experienced off and on, you know, stress. This wouldn't go away. That night, I couldn't sleep for six weeks, five minutes to 45 minutes a night. And so, for whatever reason, the Lord wanted me to experience sleep deprivation, chronic anxiety. I knew from the beginning it would at least improve my empathy and my understanding, but I got to be jealous of my patients. They would come in, they'd be suffering from anxiety, they take a little medicine, we do eight sessions of therapy, they're fine, they go off on their way, I'm still miserable. And so for me, at the medicines that I took at that time got me a little bit of rest, got me a little bit of, of, of relief a little bit, but not much. And so for three years, I really struggled. Um, I never missed work. And, and, and so out of this, I also realized your worst stories are your best stories. Once you're on the other side, God will call you to share your worst stories, and they will be life transforming for somebody. So a uh, young man came in uh, to see me. He was a graduate student, and he said, oh, doc, I'm having a terrible time. I'm just not sleeping. Oh, how much sleep are you getting? 
I don't know, maybe about six hours. So, <laughs> so, so he says, he says I'm, I'm missing class. I'm, I'm at risk of, of failing, you know. And, and, and I don't usually do this in a first meeting. Within the first 10 minutes, I said to him, young man, I know what it's like to not sleep. I went six weeks with five minutes to 45 minutes of sleep. I know what it's like to just feel miserable. I've never missed a day of work in my life. Nobody knows that I was feeling that. You can do this. So I'm next week. How'd you do? Went to every class, he says. <laughs> Went to every thought of you. So I can do, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. So there are times when God will call upon you to share your worst stories, and they will be life-transforming. There are times. And so that's one way God uses our depression and anxiety. Um, okay, next slide. So, uh, bah, 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 bah. so social support was very important. So it was during this time that a good friend of mine and I were having a conversation. And, and see, when you are a leader, you don't get to tell everybody you're depressed. Do you know that? When you, I'm running an organization, you know, hey, guys, I'm depressed again. No, it, does, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So, so, so I, this, during this time, I crafted the concept from Ecclesiastes 4. I call a cord of three strands. And here you read, if a man is working alone in a field and he falls, no one can help him. But if two are working in the field, one can help the other up. They get a better return for their labor. They can fight against a common enemy and keep each other warm at night. They're probably shepherds out there in the cold. So that the next verse is a cord of three strands is not easily broken. So if you picture three strings and you braid them together, they are much more strong than each one individually. And I take this very literally. The cord of three strands, in my interpretation, are coworkers. Not, not spouse. So these could be friends. So since, this, since that time I've conceptualized I have to have a cord of three strands for every aspect of life. I need a council of three for my work, for my ministry, for my marriage, for my parenting. And God has provided that. And so this is a very, very important message. You have to have your cord of three strands before you get into depression. Because you don't feel like getting that put together when you're in depression. So you should all be asking yourself, who are the people that I can tell the truth to and will love me? Who are the people that I could be transparent with and will not despise me, nor will they gossip about me, which is really, really important. So my very good friend, we've been friends for longer than you can possibly imagine, most of you. Um, you know, one day he said to me, and I'll never forget this phrase, you are the same man that I have known all of my life. You have value, even though you feel that you have none, which is a very important message we need to share with people. If they're willing to share with us, we need to affirm their value even when they don't feel like it. So, so my friends got me through these very, very difficult times when medicine didn't, when counsel really wasn't very helpful. Now, I'm not, I'm not naysaying medicine. I mean, if, if it works for you, do it. Um, but, but God, for whatever reason, didn't want me to learn that lesson yet. And so I, I had to fix some things. Next slide, please. So, so I fixed things, and then it took my brain a year to get back to normal once I had fixed the stressors and things that, that I needed to wrestle with. So all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. I would recite this every day. So I would picture myself hanging onto truth by my fingernails. This was an image. Me hanging by my fingernails onto truth, hoping that I don't blow away. And so I developed certain verses I just said to myself every day, every day, every day. And one of them I quoted to myself in much wisdom. This is from... Uh, Proverbs, and much wisdom is sorrow, and he who increases wisdom increases suffering. Well, Lord, you must be making me pretty smart, because this is, this is really not going well, right? 
And so there are times when we don't know what to say. I shared that I was with dinner, at dinner with people just speechless. There are times when we're speechless before God. Here's the verse. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's a wonderful concept. That If I just don't have a clue, I can just say, go on, Spirit, do it. Do your thing and trust that, that God is working on our behalf. So calling it good was something I conceptualized. I couldn't sleep, so I'd get up before dawn, and I decided I would dig a French drain around my house to help with the flooding problem. A French drain is you dig a hole, you dig a trench, you line it with rock, and water then can flow. Well, this was clay. So I would get up, dig for two hours, have about nine inches done, and <laughs> literally, and I would, say, I would say this out loud because I felt it was a discipline that is good. And at the end of the day, I would declare everything I was able to participate in that was good, even though I felt no better. Does that make sense? Do you follow that? So it's a discipline. Call it good, knowing, okay, it may not change my heart, but I'm exercising my soul, my mind, and calling it good. Um, and then you have to limit the negative thoughts. If you are anxious or depressed, that is what's going to just come into your brain. And so the most effective intervention is dirt cheap. You take a rubber band, you put it around your wrist. It's a loose rubber band. And every time you've decided you, have, you identify an obsession, I'm just worrying about this way too much. When that thought comes into your head, you snap the rubber band lightly, and you say, stop that, this is bad for my brain, which is absolutely true. There's a place in your brain called the right caudate nucleus, which is the automatic transmission for thought, and it's stuck on negative content. It sets right next to the seat of dread, and so you can be having this negative thought and dread is plowing through your head. When you snap the rubber band, if it was on my right wrist, I'm giving my brain a leap over to a different part of the brain. The sensory experience gets some activity over here, and then I say to myself, what do I need to be doing right now? And I focus on what is right now because most of us right now are okay, right? No matter how you're feeling right now, you're okay. And so we get into the present, we get into the moment, and we tell ourselves we're okay, and this is a discipline. You practice it, practice it, practice it. And discipline is good for us, right? So and do the next right thing. Accepting your limits is, is a big concept that people who are very responsible, any super responsible people in here? You don't need to raise your hand. Um, uh, but you'll feel that you need to, because I asked for you, right? So you'll, be, you'll, you'll struggle with this. So, so, um, so those of us that are super responsible have to accept the limits of our influence. We, we take on too much responsibility. This is one of my problems. We take up too much responsibility. So if, if, if this, carpet represents the limits of my responsibility, and I step over here, where am I? I'm in God's territory. I'm trying to be God. So what's going to happen if I try to be God? You ever see that movie with Jim Carrey, where, where he's God for a little while, and he tries to answer everybody's prayers? I mean, that's where you're at. You're just stuck with <laughs> sticky notes trying to, trying to answer all these prayers, right? So, so if you can figure out, this is my zone. This is what God's given me to do. He's going to take care of the rest. We're in better shape. And that's something I had to work on during this time. Next slide, please. So I went along, you know, 2000, I came out of it, and every morning, I would thank God for feeling good. Thank you, God, for feeling good. There's nothing better than feeling good, and you really appreciate it after you've not felt well, right? So I thought, I was hoping that was the end of it, that I'd never feel bad again, but nope. In 2008, there was a death of someone close to me. I was diagnosed with Meniere's disease, which affected my diet and socialization and stuff. And I had to fire somebody who just didn't have the technical ability to take us forward. And these cumulative losses, one night I didn't sleep and I realized, okay, here we go again. 
And this time, after a year of the same old anxiety, I actually experienced depression, which I realized this is the first time I've really experienced this. Difficulty moving, just difficulty finding a way to make it through the day. And this is where I actually believe God was done with me. You know, I'm still a relatively young man. I still have a vision. I, I knew how to move forward with my company and my ministry, and I didn't have the energy to do it. And I thought, God must be done with me. I mean, this must be it. And I began conceptualizing, uh, you know, my people live a long time, you know, 30, 40 years of just not doing anything, which when you're a doer, that's just really not good news. So this is an, an example of the negative thinking that starts creeping in when you're, when you're this way. So next slide, please. So coming out of this, I had to fix some problems, and so I had to adjust to a whole new diet and stuff like that, and medication did help. And so I tried a medicine that I'd never tried before, and in one month, I was back on my feet. Actually, within a couple weeks, I was back on my feet. And it was like, oh, what are you trying to show me with this, God? It, that's always my answer. It, my answer isn't not why, God. That's sort of a complaint, right? Why'd you spill your milk? Why, God? Why is it, it, is, it is, what's God going to do with this? That's my, so, what's God, so what's this mean that now I'm having this experience? Well, what it was was a lot of confidence. It was like, okay, if I get in the bag again, I'm taking the same medicine. I think, I think it'll help me again, right? But after a few months, you know, I came off the medicine. I was back to me. But I was really determined. Next slide, please. I was determined to be different. And so I spent a year, Becky with me, I hired a good friend of mine, and he was my personal coach, and it was, it was aggressive coaching, an hour a week and a weekend a month. And he's in Long Island, and I'm in Southeast Virginia. So sometimes we were one or the other. We met in Atlantic City one time, just, and, and it was very intense. And out of this came some very interesting things. Um, and so there was one day in, in 2012, we were doing an exercise. It's called creating capacity, which means time and space, by getting rid of stuff you don't value. And so we did an exercise, and Becky says, oh, if I cut back on Facebook and TV, I can do this and this. Well, I looked at mine and said, i got to cut back on counseling. And I was like, that's what I do. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's how I make a living. I mean, how's this going to work? And, but, but I felt that's what God said to me. I was seeing, you know, 50 people a week in, in, in individual and family counseling. And, and I think God was saying, you know, it's time to change. And so we conceptualized I would only take in as new patients leaders, which is what I still do to this day. I only see leaders. And I have a staff of, of 15, so I, you know, they can pass everybody else off to them. It took a year to get my caseload down, but what, the end result was this, which isn't everybody's story, but I became creative with how we did other things, and I increased my personal productivity by double in terms of economics, and, and increased the variety of my activity by triple, and I've been much happier and contented ever since. So, so sometimes God has to stop us in our tracks. Here's one lesson, stops us in our tracks, and to where we say, so what am I supposed to do with this God? And he gives us a different path, which we wouldn't have had if we just kind of went along our merry way. Does that make sense? So at least that's my story. So acceptance and mindfulness are, are pretty common terms in contemporary psychology today. Mindfulness is the ability to pay attention to one thing longer than you normally would. And I have a very busy brain. We have a very busy culture. Those of you that drive and have a book on your thing and, uh, and you're watching a video overhead and you're texting, that's, that multitasking is not good for the brain, nor probably for your life if you're actually doing what I just described. So, <clears throat> so what's happening is you're moving your attention rapidly from one thing to another. And so the most stressful job in my organization isn't the counselor. When I'm counseling, I'm just focused on you or you or whoever's in the room, right? I'm just focused on one thing if I'm doing my job well. My front desk, they have to answer the phone, take messages, take money, sign people up, uh, right? They have to move their attention 
that multitasking is stressful. It's bad for your brain. So we, we hear from David. He talked, he wrote about meditating on the word of God. One of the greatest things you can do for yourself is develop the discipline of taking a simple verse and just saying it very slowly in phrases in rhythm of your breathing. That's meditative. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Now, if you just learn to pray like that, you have little gaps to listen in between. And, and it's very, very powerful. So developing mindful techniques. Uh, there, you, can, you can eat mindfully, exercise mindfully, pray mindfully, and, and it'll, it, it's healing for the brain. Uh, some f amazing research with attention deficit shows that mindful activity can actually cure the distracted brain, which is just earth-shattering and paradigm-shifting stuff, great stuff. And then faith. It isn't great faith when you're feeling good and praise God, right? I mean, that's just sort of natural. It's great faith when you're feeling bad and praise God. That is showing good faith. So your faith is tested when you're not feeling well, but it's also the opportunity to express great faith. Next slide, please. So how do we minister to people who are anxious and depressed? Let's say you're not, but you have a loved one who is. What do we do? And so... We read in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, which is a description of empathy, expressing feeling for and with. And when you empathize, empathize, is that right? Empa yeah, PHs are messing me up. Empathize with people they feel cared about. You give them your time and attention, you stay with them. And so we're gonna show a little video, the one that you tried to leak out at the beginning there. And let's just watch Brene Brown talk about Empathy. This is really, really good. Go ahead. While he's setting that up, if someone could sing a line of dough in the morning, that would be awesome. That would, that would fill the, fill the airtime here. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection, sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is... It's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no. You want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. 
I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Very good. She does a great job with that. Um, is on the screen the anxiety free since 2012 slide yet? So we want to get back to the slides. We're going to wrap up here for this part of the morning's activity. Um, it just it just take a couple of minutes for me to wrap up. And then in the Q&A, we can get into any aspect of this that you want to. Be happy to, to field whatever. Um, <clears throat> are you seeing? OK, so the next slide, please. Next slide, please. So just regarding suicide, you just ask people. The simplest thing to do if you're worried is to ask, are you having suicidal thoughts? Everybody who's depressed, whether you're a patient or a friend, I ask, you thinking of killing yourself? That's the best thing you can do. And if you find that they are having those thoughts, then you get help. Don't carry these kind of things alone. It's very, very difficult. This is particularly true of young people. If we have any teenagers in the house, your friend says, hey, don't tell anybody I'm thinking of killing myself. No way, you go tell somebody. You don't want to be stuck with that secret. So uh, next slide, please. Um, ministry of Presence, Jesus needed this. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me in the Garden of Gethsemane. That empathy thing, hanging in there with somebody longer than you think you need to, is how you minister to people who are struggling. Next slide. So you have resources, right? You have a pastor. You have physicians in the area. You have counselors in the area. So you work, it takes a team to help people thrive in spite of anxiety and depression. And you have us. So if you have difficulty connecting to somebody who can help you, we do online counseling. And one of the arrangements I have with pastors like yours is, hey, we'll see your people really cheap. So we have people who are really good counselors. They're working on getting their license, not yet. Therefore, they don't cost me much. <laughs> and so if you, if you have a need for help, just you know, reach out and we'll, we'll hook you up with somebody that can help you. All right? And our website has all kinds of interesting nonsense to look at if you want to, if you want to do that, all right? So that's it. Love each other and, and figure out how to do that practically, and you'll be ministering to each other tremendously. Thank you.